the Apostle Paul says that death is the final enemy. Uh, death is uh, something that you can't beat. It is waiting. It's very patient. And its patience will pay off because in the end, it wins. Nobody gets out of this alive. The door of the hearse is always open. It's open for the farmer. It's open for the executive as well as the politician and the prostitute and the mom and the teenager and the child. Um, and it will, uh, death will claim us all. We've all got a, a date with it. Now, regardless of the age, uh, death was never a part of God's plan. I mean, it's an intruder that it was not to be. Uh, and I've been to, uh, probably like many of y'all, a handful of funerals. And the hardest ones for me are the, the ones with little children. I had uh, good friends in college. They got married very young. And my church was very small. There were 70 of us on a good day with the nursery. It was, uh, so we, we knew each other very well. So when Susie became pregnant, everybody knew about it. And they knew they were trying. And, and everyone was having uh, kinds of parties and a countdown in the, the bulletin for her uh, uh, when she was going to deliver. And the day she was supposed to deliver, that was the day her baby died in her womb. And when I went to the, the funeral, you know, I was standing there, and when they wheeled out the, the little white casket, it was near Christmas time, and so the, uh, this was their first baby, and so they had the uh, uh, stocking already on their mantle at home. So they brought it and was draped over the casket, and I just, I just I crashed. I, I couldn't handle it. I was done. Uh, those seem to be the hardest for me. We expect to bury our parents, but we don't expect to bury our children. And the, the, the death of a child especially, lots of questions around that, right? Why, of course, which there is no answer to. There's, as a parent, there would be no answer in the world that would satisfy that. But there are other questions, questions like, where will this child spend eternity? You know, I've done a handful of question-answer sessions over the years, and that question is one of the ones that come up often, but not like many of the others that come up out of curiosity or because I'm in this theological debate or I'm wondering about this verse. This question often comes up out of pain and out of uh, a sense of despair sometimes. And so we, we need to ask. Answer. Try to answer that question. Uh, right now, this, this week, we are in a, a, kind of a, a buffer between series. And I trust and hope that when we hit these, my goal is to use them as a time to go deep in theology to see what does God's word say about some of these things. You know, as far as the, the pain that this brings to parents. Many of y'all have been there. We need to answer, try to answer that question. Uh, between the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf War, and the Iraq-Afghanistan campaigns, the United States has lost approximately 1.5 million people. Very, very, very precious every life. They're estimated worldwide this year that through normal infant mortality, Birth between zero and one years old, there'll be 4.5 million children who will die this year. Uh, and that's very conservative. Some have said that it's twice that many. When you add to that 30 million uh, projected miscarriages worldwide this year. And then we have, that's what we're talking with, it could be 45 million babies this year, and we haven't touched abortion. You can more than double it at that point. And it requires, those numbers require, you say, well, what happens to those children? Where do they, where do they go? 
and the pain that this brings and the, the consequences that it brings. It says it said that 60% of parents who've lost a, a, an infant will struggle with intense anger. 50% of the men, 90% of the women will struggle with feelings of guilt. 70% will, will lose their appetite. 85% will lose their sleep. Almost 100% say that I, have, I felt a profound sadness in, in a depth that I didn't know existed. Because of the, the consequences it could have on marriages and on families, we need to try to answer this question. Now, if, you, if you're not understanding the uh, situation, let me, let me spill this out for you. First of all, babies are sinners. Now, we would say, and Pelagian would say, no, you know, no, no, they're not. They, they're not sinners. But there's just too much scripture that says, yeah, yeah, they, they are. I, Psalm 51, I think we've got it up. Yeah. David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, he's not talking about some bad thing that went on between his mom and who knows who. David was the youngest child. Everything was fine between his parents. He's talking about himself. He was conceived in sin. Check this out. I think it's Ephesians 2, 3. Do we have this? He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Now, now check that. Stop for just a second. It doesn't say like the rest we were because we, we practiced sin deserving wrath. We were by nature. It's, it's in our nature. We are sinners by nature. They call that original sin. Have babies, are babies sinners? Yes, they're sinners. Clearly they're sinners. Scripture says it. And if you have babies at home, you know it doesn't take you too long to get to that recognition that yes, I got a little sinner here. Um, second point. And we understand that, that how is someone enter into the kingdom of God? Will we enter into the kingdom of God by grace through faith? We recognize we have to come to a point where we realize Jesus died for us and that he rose again and we repent, we commit our lives to him. And through that process, we are what we call saved or born again. We have to believe. Get that? Babies are lost. You have to believe in order to be saved. Babies are not capable of believing. Therefore, you see, see the dilemma. What do you do with this? What happens? Well, the church pulled their hair out over the years trying to figure this out. And so one of the solutions that they came up with, which is not biblical, by the way, is baptism. And we figure, okay, well, we can figure it, we can fix it with baptism. And so this is, all, this is widespread. Roman Catholic Church holds to uh, grace coming in through, through baptism of an infant. It's been a practice for a while. 1546, the Council of Trent ratified that, yes, this is what we believe. In 1951, Pope Pius XII, I believe, and we have that up there, yes, Pius says that no other way besides baptism is seen as importing the life of Christ to little children. Now, Martin Luther followed on this. Now, Luther, of course, was a, a Catholic priest, and so he, before he became a Lutheran, and so he, he held to this as well. We got a lot of good stuff from Luther, by the way. This was not one of them. Luther says, Baptism worketh forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and gives everlasting salvation to all who believe. And so folk would say, yes, Martin, but see, that's the problem. All who believe, infants can't believe. And he would go on to say, Surrogate faith on the part of the, his parents is rendered in his behalf. So baptized babies will be saved. The Lutheran Augsburg Confession, it's kind of like what the Westminster Confession is to Presbyterians. It says this, Lutherans teach that it, baptism, is necessary for salvation 
and that by baptism the grace of God is offered and that children are to be baptized who by baptism being offered to God are received into God's favor. There are several Reformed faiths that hold, or denominations that kind of hold to the same thing between an Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, several things, several Reformed groups that hold to that same sort of deal. Now, at best, baptism is a partial fix. I mean, it's not, not biblical here, but, but at best, it's a partial fix because it doesn't answer the question, well, what about unbaptized babies? And you can imagine the scenario, can't you? The, the, the baby's struggling, and so the priest is on his way to the hospital, and he gets caught in traffic, and he misses it. And the baby dies, unbaptized. What happens to that poor child because the priest got caught in traffic? Well, they weren't sure what to do with that one, so uh, different ideas came up. Uh, one of the places referred to as limbo, perhaps you, you've heard of, of this, by the way, you need to know it was never, ever, it was taught, it was a, a, a thought in the Roman Catholic Church, but not necessarily official doctrine. Um, you find, uh, which limbo was not hell, but it wasn't heaven as well. It was just a place that unbaptized babies, severely mentally retarded adults would end up going. Uh, in 1992, this is just, Parenthesis, but just so you know, 1992, the word limbo was dropped out of the Roman Catholic Catechism. It's not part of their thinking or talking anymore. Um, 13th century, 15th century, there were some declarative statements from the Roman Catholic Church that stated that unbaptized babies, their souls went to hell. They weren't, be, they would not be punished as greatly as as others, but that's where that they went. 2007. The International Theological Commission that worked for the Vatican said this. They said that, that the idea of limbo is too restrictive, that there is certainly hope for unbaptized babies to enter into the kingdom of God. So the Roman Catholic ideas are, are there today. Uh, but now this is what we can't do with this one, just so you know. And this is kind of the thing that we can all tend to do for hot, very emotionally charged issues. When they come up, and you can imagine, when, when something like this comes up, a child dies, it's not time to have a theology lesson, right? It's not, not, that's not the time. And so what we do is we declare something. We attribute uh, God's favor to some statement that we're making that really is just a statement of convenience. It's ease. It's going to help everybody emotionally. We really aren't sure, in all honesty, if this is really what God's thinking, but it's what we're hoping, but we declare it as certainly the fact. Well, we can't go down that road. I mean, it, it, declaring something as fact doesn't make it fact. Uh, likewise, sometimes in that situation, we're not sure what to say, and so we just spout off what we've heard other people say. But we're really not sure if that's true either. Uh, or, number three, and we usually won't, uh, it's good that we don't, but we usually uh, won't say this, but we know there's not a single verse that pinpoints this baby with clarity, and so we don't say anything, but we're thinking, well, there's no verse in Scripture on this one, so we just don't know. Well, what we want to look through this morning, we want to do some theology. We want to connect some dots theologically and see what we think Scripture's pointing to on this. So I hope you got your Bibles because we're going to put some miles on them th this morning. Uh, I'm going to have to lean into my notes a little bit because I've got so many texts, but I hope you got your, your, your Bible with you. And one of the, the first things we want to say, I like to say there's, there's, I believe Scripture points out clearly, I believe it's clear that infants are going to be in heaven. Infants are there. I believe it's clear. We just need to connect some dots and see what God's word says. First thing is that scripture uh, 
draws a distinction between the moral culpability of adults and the moral culpability of infants. It just, it's very clear. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 1. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is, is, they've just been 40 years in the wilderness. They're getting ready to go into Canaan, and so Moses is rehashing their history. Remember, Dan Block talked a little bit about this last week. And, and if you remember the story, at one point they sent, first time they sent 12 spies into Canaan. And Joshua and Caleb came back saying, we should go and we can beat these guys up. And the other 10 guys came back and said, oh, no, no, no. We're going to get killed if we go in there and they're going to capture our children. They're going to they're gonna take our kids and we're going to get killed. So we can't go in there. Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning in verse 34, Moses is talking to the people and he says, when the Lord heard what you said, that's we can't go in there, we're going to get killed and our kids are going to be taken. He was angry. And he solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it. And I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also. That's Moses. And he said, you shall not enter it either. But your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. Look at this. This is cool. Verse 39. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children, who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. Uh, There's an understanding in God's mind of of a group of people. And I don't know an age. I'm not going to get into this age of accountability thing, but it seems like an understanding of, of, of what I'm doing. And God says there's a group of people, they're real people, but they don't understand yet. And so I am not going to hold them morally responsible for the decisions made. Does it's, 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 this in and of itself solve everything? No, 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 no. But sec- second thing we want to look at, and that is that Scripture teaches that, this, that we're saved by grace. No question about that, we're saved by grace. But Scripture also teaches that we are condemned by our works. We're not condemned Hang with me on this one. We're not condemned straight up because of original sin. Though we're all sinners. We're saved by grace, but we're condemned by our, damned by our works. Romans 1, 18 and 19. Look what it says. Uh, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, Suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. God's wrath comes on those who suppress the truth, right? Verse 28. Furthermore, of Romans 1, and he's talking to pagans here, people who are, you know, this is, this is the question, what about the guy who lives out in the jungle who's never heard? This is who he's talking about. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All those are actions, right? Although Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death... They not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. Whenever we see the inhabitants of hell talked about in Scripture, 
They are always there because of some willful decision to do some rebellious act, to, to, to choose unbelief, to live in unrighteousness. Whenever we see the inhabitants of hell talked about, they are always there because of some willful decision to do, to believe that which is contrary to God. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. says, for of this you can be sure. No immoral, moral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, such things, so these actions, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Uh, look at this, Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small. That doesn't mean tall and short. It doesn't mean young and old. It means like princes and paupers. Standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, not their original sin. Meanwhile, listen to what God thinks about children, the innocence of children. Isaiah seven sixteen, and we can't give you all the, the background on the text, but... Uh, Israel is, uh, Isaiah's prophesying and there's going to be people coming against the northern kingdom of Israel. And he says, but before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Again, there's that understanding that the children are not understanding. God realizes the kids are not understanding. The, the choosing of the difference between wrong and right. Jonah 4.11. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned? 120,000 little kids in the city. And he says, you want me to just bring judgment on the city and blow the whole place up? You've got 120,000 little kids here. They don't know. We're talking judgment. You want me to dump judgment on these kids who don't know? Should I not be concerned? God says. Then he says in uh, Ezekiel, this is... This is huge. Because he's talking to pagan Jewish families. Not good, godly Jewish families. Not Jewish families that are reading the Torah every night. And, and not even Jewish families that have all been circumcised. They haven't circumcised their kids, which is a sign of the covenant. He's talking to them and he says, You took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me. And you sacrificed them as food to the idols. They they killed their children. He says, was your prostitution not enough? And what he's talking about is spiritual prostitution. The picture is God is married to Israel and they've dumped him for other gods, other, other lovers. He says in 21, you slaughtered my children and you sacrificed them to idols. God is claiming not the children from good godly families, but the children, the little ones, they're mine. Don't be slaughtering my kids. That's what he's saying. Uh, he draws a distinction between the moral culpability of adults and children. We find that we're saved by grace, but we're condemned by our, our works. There's a third point, though, and though that is that Jesus' example, Jesus' teaching, demonstrates the innocence of, of the children. Matthew 18, if you've got your Bibles, turn there. That's a great passage, just a great passage. Matthew 18, we'll be in verses 1 through 3. But it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
the context here is the disciples are arguing about who's the most significant in heaven. Who's going to be, who's the best one? Oh yeah, well you always fall and trip. Oh no, I'm better than you. Well at least I'm not a loser like you. Well at least I'm not a poser like you. And they're talking about who, you know. So they ask Jesus, oh Jesus, who's the better one here? Who's the most significant? And Jesus brings the kids up. The little kids. And Jesus doesn't have a romantic idea of children. They're all so sweet and wonderful and have worlds made. At this time, children were the most insignificant thing. They were on the same level as the slaves. They would grow out of that. But while they were little, zero rights, incredibly insignificant. And what Jesus is saying is you think you're so important, you think you're so significant, you've got to recognize it's not about you. Okay, so that's, that's, this is an analogy to deal with the little children. But it's a lousy analogy if all the little children are destined for hell, if none of them are saved, if all of them are on their way to hell, they're recipients of hell, it's a lousy illustration to use these guys as an example from heaven. We find it's Mark chapter 10. Is that right? Yeah. It says the people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the, the little children, Luke's going to let us know, those are infants, uh, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children, the infants, come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. Now just a couple things. Again, it's the analogy of your significance and fighting for who you think is important. But still, this is a lousy, lousy, lousy uh, illustration. If Jesus is going to say, the kingdom of heaven is like these little children. Knowing that these little children are really on their way to hell and they're not uh, underneath the blood of Christ at all, this is a terrible illustration. And then for Jesus to put his hands and bless them, this is the only time in Scripture, if these kids aren't under the blood of Christ, this is the only time in Scripture we find Jesus blessing somebody who's at enmity with God. Somebody who's on their way to hell, he's going to bless them. You don't find this, and he doesn't do this anywhere else if in fact we would say these, these kids are uh, not uh, Believers, the, the words in the teaching of Jesus seem to point to the fact that, that the kingdom of heaven is, is made up of, of, of little children. And number four, and that is that the examples and testimony of Scripture bear witness to the idea that infants will be in, in heaven. Second Samuel 12, and this is a key passage. Because we all know about David and Bathsheba and that whole, uh, that whole thing, right? Well, Bathsheba's pregnant with the baby from their adulterous situation. And uh, uh, baby's born, kid's not doing well at all. And so David, he's a dad. So he goes into this major time of fasting. His, his, his child's looking like he's going to die. And so he's fasting and pleading, please, God, I know I messed up. I know I'm an idiot. I'm so sorry. Please, will you spare my kid? It's like any dad should do this kind of thing, right? We're there. And so, so he's, do, he's, he's praying, he's fasting. Chapter 12 of Second Samuel, verse 18, it says, On the seventh day the child died, and David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living... We spoke to David, and he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. I think, man, when David hears this, he's going to go off. We, we, how do you do this? Well, David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. 
Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at the request, they served him food, and he ate. And his servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? And he answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? No. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, some have said, Well, this, what David is saying here, he's going to go to be with the child. They're saying, Well, all he's really talking about is he's going to be buried next to the child. He's going to die too. Is that real comforting to you? Yeah, my child died, but it's not a big deal because I'll be buried next to him one day. That's not a comforting thing. And and David's response is really a mirror from his response he had when his older son, his adult son Absalom dies. This is the next verse. Oh, I'm sorry, one more. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he wept, he said, this is after Absalom dies. Listen, look at the, listen, this is different from the, from the baby. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He's an incredible grief. He's not planning on going to where Absalom is. He recognizes that there is a, a stark difference between his, his two boys, the death of his two uh, children. Uh, let's look at the, the next next text for a second. It's it's, it's excellent. First Kings fourteen. He's talking to Jeroboam's wife. Now Jeroboam was an evil, wicked king in the north, and he, Jeroboam's boy, infant son, looks like he's going to die. He's pretty sick. Jeroboam's wife comes to plead and say, "Hey, listen, what's going to happen to my kid?" It says, "As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die." All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because, check this out, because, this is an infant kid, because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom, any, in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. Isn't that an interesting verse? Revelation 5, 9 10. It says, They sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now we know that there have been tribes and people, groups, that have never had a, a witness for Christ, not just today, but in, in past history, that they have not. And the, the tribe came and went. Without ever hearing about Jesus, how can he say there will be people from that tribe in heaven one day? Other than the infants who died, who perished. Uh, Number five, just a fifth dot, so we connect the dots here. The purpose of hell and punishment is just not compatible with infants. Oh man, think Matthew 25 Let's us know that hell was created for the devil and his angels and his followers and his messengers. John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you're one of the devil's followers. Why? Because you have original sin? No, because you're a liar, because you're a murderer, just like him. Can you imagine an infant who dies, who wakes up fully conscious, understanding, and he's in hell, trying to figure out what in the world is going on? Everything we know about God the, the, the scripture reveals about who he is, makes hell and, and an infant 
incredibly incompatible. God is one who says, um, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the ungodly. God is the one who wants people out of hell so much that he sends his own son to die, to keep people out. God is the one who, who commands you and I to stick up for, Proverbs, stand up for those, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. God is the one who in Romans chapter 1 condemns the pagan, not based on what, what he, his original sin state, but on what he's done. God is, is the one who is a savior. Everything we know about who God is and, and, and an infant in hell, they're just not compatible. Now, a question that, that, that comes up on top of this sometimes is, well, will I recognize my infant child in heaven one day? Well, yeah, you will. I believe so. Uh, again, doesn't, Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about this, but I see on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are up there with Jesus, and suddenly Moses and Elijah come. And we don't see any introduc- introductions. You know, Peter, James, and John, this is Moses, this is Elijah, you guys want you to meet Peter, James, and John. There's no introductions. And they've never seen any pictures of them. But somehow they just know that's Moses and that's Elijah. They just know in heaven you will know. Now what age will the child have in heaven? You know, it looks like the heaven's going to be filled with strollers. You know, it's like living perpetually in the nursery. Is that heaven? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what chronological age they will manifest. People will manifest. I, I, I know that the pictures of Folk in heaven, they're completely conscious, they're matured, they understand worship, they understand who their God was. And so, I I don't know what to tell you on that other than there's a a full maturity level. Was it uh, a a business guy, Christian guy, was transferred another state, another place, and he went into his office and he met with his team just trying to get to know his team. He brought them in together and sat down and they started going around the questions and who are you and where do you live and all these things. And one of the questions, this guy he was a believer, but he asked is, tell me about your faith. Where are you at spiritually? Just trying to get my finger on where you're at. And it went around and all kinds of different stuff as you can imagine. And uh, as they were going around though, this one gal, she was just tensing up. And it came to her, her time. And she just, she just blurted out, I don't believe in this God stuff, she said. And she said, you, you, you know, uh, I want to know this, if there's a God. Where was he when my son died? And the man responded, he said, you know, I, I, I don't know. But I'm guessing he was the same place he was when his son died. Um, when you think about Jesus, this isn't, this is, Jesus cried Jesus experienced anger. Jesus experienced joy. I wouldn't doubt Jesus laughed. Uh, emotion is not something from hell or something we invented. It was cre- it's a gift created by God. And Jesus was here to reflect God the Father, which means God the Father reflects emotions much fuller than we do and much purer than we do. How, what was he thinking when he saw his son hanging on the cross? When he saw his son being crucified, so if, if you've had a child pass away, you need to know God the Father understands. He knows. He knows uh, completely. Joseph Bailey, in his book, The Last Thing We Talk About, Joseph Bailey lost three kids, one at 18 days, uh, surgery that went wrong, one at the age of five to leukemia, and one at the age of 18 in a sledding accident. 
and he, he writes this. He says that a few years ago I was waiting to see Dr. Irving Woolman, hematologist at Philadelphia Children's Hospital. The day before we had buried our almost five-year-old who had died of leukemia, now I was waiting to thank the man who had been so kind to our little boy and to us during the nine months between diagnosis and, sec- and death. The secretary, well, she looked toward the little boy playing on the floor. In my preoccupation, I had failed to notice any others in the waiting room, and she whispered to me, he has the same problem your little boy had. I sat down next to the little boy's mother. We were far enough away from him, and we we talked softly enough that he could not hear us. It's hard bringing him here every two weeks for these tests, isn't it? I didn't ask a question. I stated a fact. Hard? She was silent for a moment. I die every time. And now he's beginning to sense that something's wrong. It's good to know, isn't it? I spoke slowly, choosing my words with unusual care. That even though the medical outlook is hopeless, we can have hope for our children in such a situation. We can be sure that after our child dies, he'll be completely removed from sickness and suffering and everything like that and be completely well and happy. If I could only believe that, the woman replied. But I don't. When he dies, I'll just have to cover him up with dirt and forget I ever had him. She turned back to watching her little boy push a toy auto on the floor. I'm glad I don't feel that way. I didn't want to say it. I wanted to leave her alone with her apprehension. I wanted to be alone with my grief. But I was compelled to speak. Why? This time she didn't turn toward me, but kept watching her child. Because we covered our little boy up with dirt yesterday afternoon. She said, you look like a rational person. She was looking straight at me now. How can you possibly believe that the death of a man or little boy is any different from the death of an animal. God, who's created the little boy, created him in his image. And everything we find in Scripture points to the fact that when the child dies, uh, God will embrace him. If you've had a child who's died uh, for whatever, sickness or accident, uh, miscarriage, SIDS, um, Abortion. You got. You got. You got to know this. Please know this. That whatever time has stolen from you, the fallenness of the world has stolen that from you. In heaven, you will be reunited. If you know Christ, you will be reunited. You will, and you will love them more than you could have down here on earth, and they will love you more as you stand side by side, worshiping your God together. So I'm going to pray for us for just a moment. I invited Nathan. He's going to come out and sing a prayer. And as he does, would you listen to the words and, and, and seek to make this your prayer?